This afternoon we're going to look at just one question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism that deals with our fall into sin. We're going to read then, first of all, from Genesis chapter 3, where we read the sad account of that first sin. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, we'll also read a little bit from Romans 5, where again the Apostle Paul talks about the sin of Adam. Genesis 3 then, on page 3 in your Bible. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God, said, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, starting at verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Romans 5, 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, 
even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we'll look at the Word of God as we confess it about that in Lord's Day 3, question answer 7. Lord's Day 3, question answer 7. There we ask, after we confess in question 6, that we are wicked and perverse, we ask, from where then did man's depraved nature come? We answer, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Let's sing after the sermon from Psalm 51, 2, 4, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, just what happened? You know, that should be the question. Whenever we look out over our world, it's no mystery. It's like in our world, a a huge accident has happened. Being born is like arriving on the scene of a wreck. So much is wrong with this world, with mankind. It's too simple to say, well, it was always like this. This is how we evolved, you know, it's just survival of the fittest. I think we all know that that is in a way too simple of an explanation. It certainly doesn't satisfy. Something happened. Something bad. There are Eastern religions that say good and evil. And by the way, evolution has no concept really of good or evil. Some Eastern religions say good and evil are just part of life. You know, like yin and yang, they, they almost need each other. They even depend upon each other. Persian religion says there is evil because there is also an evil God. And the evil God and the good God are sort of duking it out, fighting in this world. The Word of God reveals to us that there was a fall, a huge fall, a fall with tremendous consequences. A fall that brought death. A fall that corrupted us all from even the moment we are conceived. You know, that's one of the huge problems with the new gender ideology, the new sexuality of our day and age. (coughs) You know, it would be one thing if people who believe that same-sex attraction is okay... And, and we don't believe it's okay. The Word of God doesn't say it's okay. But it would be one thing if they thought that was okay and that was the only point, really, that you were you know, at cross-purposes with them. As if they could still talk about sin and evil or even acknowledge their need for a Savior. But, if this is not too much of a generalization, what you find is that this is not a one-issue matter. Accepting the gay lifestyle time and time again seems to mean that your, your whole idea of sin gets thrown out the window. It gets downsized. Sexual desire, says one gay-affirming pastor in a book that was just released about a month ago. The title of the book is Shameless. 
This is what the pastor says. It's something we should listen to, make decisions about, explore. One more conservative Christian author, Wesley Hill, who believes that he should struggle and does struggle with his own same-sex attraction issues, writes this about this book in a review. In this progressive Christianity, that's of this other pastor, it often seems that a spirituality of the goodness of creation downplays or bypasses altogether any serious consideration of our fallenness. So we cannot, we should not only consider our good creation, which certainly in the beginning was very good. But the Word of God also reveals that there was a fall, a very huge fall. And that is so fundamental. That should be so basic to the way the Christian approaches the issues of life that we even look at ourselves through those eyes, a Christian then should have a supersized view of sin, its misery, its consequences. And it was all our faults. In Genesis, we, talk of, we read about a, a snake whispering lies well, that's sort of all that we get in Genesis. We do know that the, de- that the snake was the devil. Behind the snake was the devil. And we do know that the devil himself first sinned and rebelled against God. But did you notice that's not in Genesis, that backstory. All the focus here is on Adam and Eve who themselves willfully, blatantly choose to disobey God who want their own fake idea of freedom and paradise. And that is like all of us. I put the sermon then under this theme. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. So, was there an actual fall into sin? The theory of evolution, of course, says no, not at all. Uh, The theory of evolution, it's not like, you know, we were like this and then like that. No, evolution says, of course, it's, it's all like this. We're getting better and better. Of course, we like to hear that as well. It's very interesting. If you look at archaeology, if you go back in time, and even secular scientists, archaeologists will tell you this, you do not find sort of primitive savages who did not have the intelligence that we have. You find things like, well, the pyramids... Did you know that the ancient Greeks had a steam engine? The ancient Babylonians 4,000 years ago? This is not revolutionary stuff. It's just conveniently ignored these days. The ancient Babylonians regularly did cataract surgery. Neanderthals are often depicted as, you know, these knuckle-dragging numbskulls. Like one step away from the ape. But the more we find out about them, they do not fit the evolutionary picture. They had a culture and sophistication that constantly surprises and amazes archaeologists. Ask a 
linguist, you know, somebody who specializes in languages, they will tell you that ancient languages were actually far more complex than now. Certainly when it comes to language, we have sort of devolved rather than evolved. And almost all ancient cultures still have some vestige as well that in the past, now we were not primitives that are rising up from the mud. Actually in the past, there was a golden time. Things were better in the past and we are going like this. The Bible though makes that even clearer. There was actually a paradise in the beginning where there was even a walking and talking with God. And then there was a fall, a great rebellion. The Bible then makes it crystal clear what actually happened. But are those early chapters in Genesis, you say, is that real history? Isn't this more sort of like, you know, fairy tale kind of stuff? Maybe it's got some practical value to teach you some lessons. Aren't these sort of more stories like, you know, how the skunk got his stripes, that sort of thing? You don't need to believe in a literal Adam and Eve, do you? There are seminaries, Christian seminaries, where the first 11 chapters of Genesis are pushed to sort of maybe the place of, of legend, good stories, but not real history. What do you think? Would you be able to defend why the book of Genesis is real history? I mean, Genesis right from Genesis chapter 1 is real history. Well, how about these sorts of things? That is not how Genesis reads. It does not present itself as if it's sort of a, a legend. There's no, you know, once upon a time sort of thing that might tell you that. Genesis, though, reads no different than one and two kings. It certainly does not read as if it's a, a parable or like the book of Revelation. How about further? If Genesis is not real history, well, why is the Gospel of Luke real history? If Genesis, in your mind, is just a way to sort of describe how broken human nature is, that Genesis is just sort of a parable that helps us understand, why can't Easter also be a sort of parable? A parable that describes the general progress of human enlightenment. Why should Christ coming out of the grave be real history? And before you know it, of course, when you are wearing those glasses, the whole Bible just becomes, well, some points to ponder. Further, also this. Look at how the rest of Scripture reads those early chapters of Genesis. It treats them as real history. That there really was an Adam and Eve. That's what we see in Romans chapter 5. That's what the Apostle Paul does. Now in Romans chapter 5, you need to realize also what the Apostle Paul is doing. 
In Romans 5, and we don't have time to cover this at length, but Romans 5, the Apostle Paul is actually dealing with an objection to the gospel. And the objection is this. It's like someone is saying to the Apostle Paul, you are saying that one man, Jesus Christ, makes all the difference in the world. But how can one man save the world? One man dying on a cross? How can that mean that everything is different for even millions who believe in him? That's the question that Paul is dealing with in Romans 5. And this is how he answers it. He says, well, this shouldn't be a strange thing to you. Do you remember Adam? Adam, who was also just one man, but so much went wrong with him. He says, Adam, and your new King James has that too, in verse 14, was a type of the one to come. Type, the Greek word tupas, which is related, means that Adam was a pattern or a model of the one who was to come. Adam, too, was just one man, but he was a very special man. He was a representative, the representative of every human being. Even look, Eve is created out of the side of Adam, not only to show that she is like him and well-suited for him, but also to show that he is the head, the head of all humanity. In the beginning, Adam he was, you know, maybe like a, an Olympic athlete competing for their country. When an Olympic athlete, you know, gets a medal, it's not just about them. The whole country, you know, rejoices in it. God gave Adam a special place like that. Whatever he did, whatever he experienced, we all share in. And that's why Paul continues the way he does. You notice what the Apostle Paul stresses there in Romans 5, at least four times, the one man's trespass. Paul's point is that Adam, who was a real person, even just Adam's one sin, had such huge consequences. It brought death to all. So that death now reigned over mankind. And Paul makes a point even too that death reigned from Adam to Moses. What he means is that people at this time period, they did not have the law of Moses. They did not obey in this, disobey in the same sense that Adam did in outright rebellion against God. But they too suffered death. Why? Because they were in Adam as well. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, says Paul. You know, the early heretic Pelagius, he thought Adam's sin, well, it was just a bad example. Pelagius wanted to stress That, you know, we always have responsibility and we should learn to take responsibility. And I suppose that is a very good point. 
Pelagius too also wanted to, apparently he was a great motivational speaker. He wanted to stress, we have choices. We have free will. Pelagius loved to talk about how in the beginning, you know, God made us. We were the height of God's creation. There's truth to all that. But the Apostle Paul says there's so much more to it. Adam did not just become a bad example. We were made sinner. Through Adam, human nature itself was corrupted. Original sin. Later on, it was called original because it goes back to the origins but it's also the origins of all of our sins. Paul, in fact, says that Adam brought condemnation for all people. Those early chapters then in Genesis 3, they are history. They are our history. This is where the story of all of us begins here. The story of your life does not begin at the moment of your birth or even the moment of your conception. The story of your life, too, begins here in Genesis 1. In Adam's fall in Genesis 3, we sinned all. Now, does that mean that we could perhaps blame Adam for what we're like. It doesn't work like that at all, of course. We do need to stress, as Pelagius sort of leaned in that direction, that we still choose to sin freely. Sin is our choice. But yet this does explain why we are so prone to sin. Why sin seems like second nature. Well, because it is. It also tells us we need to come to grips with the fallenness well, of ourselves and of all humanity. And in fact, too, when we look at the world around us and see its evil, we need to be reminded that's the same evil that I share in. I also fell in Adam along with everyone else around me. I am no different. The sin of every person in this world ought to also proclaim and testify to you your own sin, your own sinful nature. But what about that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you ask? And we blame God in some way I mean, didn't God, after all, put that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Let's look at that for a moment. Why did God make that one tree? Well, let's make it clear right away. It was not a trap or a temptation. The tree was in paradise, after all. God had said over all of his creation, including it, it was very good. What was good about that tree? You know, it sort of boils down to this. Through that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
God gave Adam and Eve a wonderful opportunity to show and to grow in their love and trust in God. It was a test, but a test in a good way. A test that would draw things out of Adam and Eve and make them even more conscious and deliberate. In fact, it was a tree of of worship. Adam and Eve could proclaim how much they truly lived in the fear of the Lord. You know, the fruit of that tree didn't look bad. God had said not to eat of it. They could demonstrate the Word of God was their life. And that in no way was their life based on their own thoughts or their own judgments. Through that tree, God gave Adam and Eve the ability to proclaim that He alone was their God. They could give Him such glory and worship. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we have to define that too. What does that exactly mean? Maybe you ask. Knowledge of good and evil? Does it mean, first possibility, well, that through this tree, Adam and Eve would actually know, like experience, not only the good, but also the evil? I think we can't go in that direction. Adam and Eve knew what was good and evil but this idea of participating it well you know in the end in genesis 3 god says they have eaten of this tree and become like us knowing good and evil god doesn't know evil in that sense that he experiences it there is this silly idea i feel that i have to mention it that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was about sex because no in the Bible can mean that. I, mean, I read that. Of course, you can read everything on the internet, but I read that the other day. Of course, that's a very silly idea. God had told them in the beginning, in already chapter 1, to be fruitful and multiply. Well, but that sort of tells you there is that idea that the word no in biblical language, is very broad. That's actually where you do find the answer to this. And here, the word no means something like decide. This tree, maybe if we translate it like that, it'd make it a little bit clearer. It is about the deciding of good and evil. And then specifically, will it be God who decides that? Will Adam and Eve intentionally make God the king and honor him as the king? Or will they reject that? And that is what the devil wants to attack. Did God really say he starts? You know, in the Hebrew, it's not actually a question. It's a kind of, hmm, God said not to eat of any tree. You should think about that, is how the devil begins. You, you need to be a, a critical thinker. 
The temptation continues in that line. Yeah, come to think of it, you can't trust God at all because He knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. You will not look to God. You can sort of come of age. You can decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. And do you see, yeah, Genesis 3, this is our fall. Our sin is exactly the same cup of tea. What is the sin that Adam plunged himself, Eve, and all of their descendants into? But this very sin, the knowledge of good and evil. The deciding of good and evil. What is our sin? But you and I always saying, no, I don't think it's that bad. I think it's okay. It's okay for me. I will decide what is right and what is wrong. Today we have the motto, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. But that is really just the same old sin. We're still, it's our wisdom, our judgment that is the guide. It still is ourselves as the greatest moral authority in our lives. Are we even able to be that moral authority? Just look at how the world evaluates what is right and wrong. Just look at abortion, as we saw this morning. That should tell us all, really, that we're not to be trusted in this regard. Look at how pornography is treated and brushed off as just no big deal. Or our country embracing pot. We are hardly honest about the consequences of our actions. The devil painted the picture that there could be a paradise, a life, without God, specifically without the authority of God. And that is the same lie that we all believe. And every sin we commit proclaims that lie. Have you then come to grips with your depraved nature we need to have a supersized view of sin that is how we stand strong against the world around us we need to realize we do not just stumble we do not just make mistakes we do not sin in sort of an isolated sense there is a deep rot inside of all of us we constantly want god to to butt out. We constantly tell ourselves, we can choose. I can find a better life apart from you, Lord. I am not your creature. I do not live under your authority. I will do it my way. Every sin that you and I commit says that. 
Let's also rejoice. There was one like us, but so unlike us. He always lived under the authority of his God. Read through the Gospels, you'll see. Constantly, he is conscious of the Father's will. And that is his passion. He lives by the Word of God. Not simply when it means not eating from a tree, when it means even dying upon a tree. Yes, the one man's act of disobedience made everyone a sinner. But there is a second Adam. And by his one act of righteousness, his act of righteousness, which was far greater than even Adam or Eve could have had in the beginning if they had not eaten from that tree. By his one act of righteousness, justification and life will be given to all who believe in him. Amen.